Can you imagine battling through the chaotic twilight of a dynasty, watching the delicate balance of alliances and betrayals, the echoes of heroism and treachery, stretch across the wide expanse of an empire? That certainly paints a vivid picture, Ryota. It sounds like something straight out of an epic novel. Well, it is. I dropped us right in the beginning of the saga we're diving into. It's Romance of the Three Kingdoms, massively chaotic and epically beautiful. Sounds absolutely compelling. Who can resist the siren call of ancient heroic tales? So in this swirling maelstrom of heroism and treachery, there must be some key players. Absolutely. The struggle involves a grand cast of characters. Legendary warlords, cunning strategists, valiant warriors, whose actions and decisions shape the fate of kingdoms, each with their own intricate backstories and destinies that intertwine in the large tapestry of this saga. Strategists, warlords and warriors, woven together in an intricate saga, it's going to be a thrilling journey unpacking their narratives. Yes, and these stories have been resonating across centuries, influencing generations. Today, they manifest in areas like video games, movies, even everyday conversations. Right. Beyond the battlegrounds and political manoeuvres, I am keen on understanding how these narratives, rooted in a vastly different time period, continue to resonate in contemporary pop culture. Delving into the origins, one cannot help but consider Luo Guanzhong. Luo, while not a historical certainty, is widely accepted as the compilation's author. Born in a volatile period of transition from Yuan to Ming Dynasty, Luo was well positioned to interpret the toll taken by internal strife. Was this piece a response to the societal circumstances Luo found himself in? Good point, Aubrey. Remember, the epic was written during a period of socio-political flux. There's a possibility Luo penned the narrative as a commentary to echo the echoes of his times. Quite plausible indeed. What about the title, Romance of Three Kingdoms? Given it's not quite a romance in a traditional sense, nor does it solely revolve around three kingdoms, why this choice of title? Well, that's an astute observation. The term romance comes from the book's classic allusion to big, broad narratives, filled with sweeping tales of heroism, tragedies, and enduring moral dilemmas. As for the three kingdoms, they refer to Wei, Shu, and Wu. While the focus does shift and expand, the title mainly refers to these three prevailing forces which wrestled for supremacy in this epic power struggle. Syed Shaw gives us a glimpse of the intricate power dynamics at play. Teasing apart this dense epic is like unthreading a finely woven tapestry, one that reflects the chaos and grandeur of a time long gone. Aubrey, remember Luo Guanzhong lived amid the transition from Yuan to Ming Dynasty. So, intriguingly, the book could have had political motives too. Perhaps it's Luo's commentary on that volatile era's internal strife. Saint as if he attempted to expose flawed power dynamics of his time. Possibly. Some scholars even suggest that Luo used the text to relay subtle social commentaries, the novel thus becoming an indirect medium to express his personal and political beliefs. Do we have any concrete evidence supporting this theory? Fair as it sounds, it's still largely speculative, right? You're right, Aubrey. Concrete evidence, especially for such complex historical novels, is tricky to pinpoint. But Luo's exploration of moral ambiguities, his nuanced portrayal of human nature during tumultuous times, could suggest he might have used the novel as a canvas to paint societal realities. So not purely entertainment. Luo masterfully married literature and politics, history and mythology. 
Right. He was gifting us not just a captivating, high-stakes epic, but also providing a critique of the time and a reflection of societal dynamics. Aubrey, let's unpack the astounding world of Three Kingdoms, the bedrock upon which Luo Guanzhong built his epic. Would you like to sketch the broad strokes of the locale first, or dive directly into the significance of these three main kingdoms? Well, Ryota, let's start with a wide shot, shall we? The three kingdoms, Wei, Shu and Wu, spanned across a geographical landscape rich in natural resources and cultural diversity. The epic unrolls from the end of the prosperous Han dynasty, around 220 AD, leading us right into the turmoil that unfolded over the next century. Absolutely. The bulk of the narrative is indeed centred around the rise and fall of these three power centres. But it's a saga of more than just territorial dominance. We see raw ambition, politicking and moral quandaries play out against a backdrop of shifting alliances and power struggles. The Kingdom of Wei, lying in northern China, emerged from a fragmented Han dynasty. It was the most powerful, commanding an enviable amount of resources and manpower. Shu, on the other hand, was tucked away in the mountainous region of western China. And wasn't Shu's geographic seclusion both its shield and its limitation? It fostered a distinct culture of resilience and a fierce independence. But its difficult terrain and relative lack of resources also made it a challenge to sustain and expand. I couldn't have examined it better myself, Ruta. Last but not least, we have Wu, lying in eastern China, with its coastal borders presenting unique advantages and challenges. The natural barriers these areas offered played a critical part in shaping the region's political and military strategies. The vast expanse of three kingdoms encompasses plains, mountains, rivers and coastlines. Each domain devised strategies forged by the crucible of their terrain. Their very ground, in shaping their drama, becomes a character in itself. In this interplay, the tangible and the symbolic are irrevocably intertwined. It's as if the physical lay of the land roots the narrative itself, planting the drama firmly in a rich, immersive world. It's in these settings that the key characters are nurtured, locking them in mortal and ideological struggles. Let's dissect the strategic import of these territories, Aubrey. Absolutely. Let's consider the Yellow River Basin. It acted like China's cradle of civilization, hence the Fertile North was typically seen as the seat of power. The Wei Kingdom, capitalising on this, could establish a strong socio-economic structure there. As we know, the Wei had access to populous areas, which was instrumental in their ability to constantly recruit ground troops for war. But wouldn't this be an Achilles heel too, them being a constant target for others? Indeed. And the expansionist tendencies of Wei frequently put them at odds with their southern counterparts. Speaking of which, Shu and Wu, separated by the Yangtze River, were also subjected to their own strategic challenges and benefits. Isn't that right? River, for one, acted as a natural barrier, aiding in defence. This brings us to their naval strength, known to be superior than Wei's. Exactly. Wu leveraged its coastal advantage to bolster naval power. Shu, though, had a different challenge. It was nestled within mountains. This natural barrier offered protection prone to sieges. Yet, these geographical constraints also isolated Shu, keeping it resource-starved. These struggles, though, solidified the distinctive identities of these kingdoms, their boundaries shaping their internal and external policies. 
The setting doesn't just provide a visually diverse canvas. The powerful rivers, the expansive plains, the imposing mountains, but it also carves out the political landscape that dictates each kingdom's strategies. Diving headfirst into the sea of characters in the romance of Three Kingdoms, one certainly cannot ignore Liu Bei, can they? Not at all, Ryota. Liu Bei, a benevolent and charismatic leader, hailed from humble beginnings. His rise to become the Emperor of Shuhan is an inspirational journey embedded with perseverance, ambition and unwavering loyalty. His personality is a fascinating mix, isn't it? While he was known to be compassionate and caring, one cannot overlook his guile and strategic acuity. Absolutely. And let's not forget the mighty Guan Yu, Liu Bei's sworn brother and one of the key figures under his command. His martial prowess and unwavering loyalty have kept him eternally popular in Chinese folklore. Stories of Guan Yu's valour are legendary. However, I am particularly interested in the character of Zhu Liang, whose masterful strategies played a pivotal role in shaping the events of the saga. Aubrey, given your expertise in literature, what's your take on his character? Great question. Zhuge Liang, a brilliant strategist and statesman, is known for his extraordinary intelligence and forward-thinking vision. He often comes out as the quiet force that underpins the success and survival of Shu. Despite this, his humility remains constant, making him a captivating character for readers across ages. I see. It seems like each character not only adds a unique flavour to the story, but also influences the ebb and flow of its narrative. Would it be safe to say that the interplay between these characters essentially forms the crux of the epic's enduring popularity? I think you're onto something, Ryota. The multitude of characters, each with their unique traits and arcs, contribute to the rich and diverse tapestry that is the romance of three kingdoms. It's this captivating interplay of personalities that keeps readers engaged, even centuries after its creation. Let's look at Chao Chao. Initially a minor military official, his cunning strategies propelled him to quickly accumulate power, didn't they? Yes, Cao Tao indeed offers a riveting character development. From a small official in the Eastern Han Dynasty, he transformed into a warlord, controlling the largest territory and army within the span of the novel. It's his ruthlessness and pragmatism that allowed him to capitalise on the chaotic period, which is quite interesting. His war tactics were unorthodox, right? Right, Ryota. Cao Tao, while seen as a villain in folklore, was an incredibly effective leader. His deployment of tactics, both in warfare and governance, displays his versatility as a character. Moreover, his poetic genius adds something else entirely. A literati streak. That's a fascinating insight, Aubrey. Now, let's consider Liu Bei, on the other hand, viewed as a righteous counterpart to Chao Chao. I've read that he maintained staunch dedication to the Han Dynasty's restoration. How do you view his journey? Liu Bei's journey is equally intriguing, Ryota. Beginning from a sandal weaver and seller, he ascends to being an emperor. Despite personal losses and numerous defeats, his dedication to restore the Han dynasty makes him an exemplar of perseverance. I find the contrast between Chao Chao and Liu Bei quite striking. From their origins to their ambitions, it adds layers of complexity to their respective characters. Don't you think so? I agree, Ryota. Seeing the evolution of these characters within the multifaceted socio-political landscape of that era, one can't help but appreciate the profoundness of the narrative structure.
Narrative Dynamics This has always intrigued me, especially with the romance of Three Kingdoms. Its intricate structure harbours so much detail. Aubrey, what's your take on this aspect? Yes, Ryota. Complexity indeed forms the nucleus of this narrative. The vast array of characters, each uniquely crafted with their own set of traits, complex relationships and trajectories, is nothing short of impressive. It's like a beautifully designed puzzle where each piece plays an integral role in the larger picture. Absolutely. Even the pervading themes reflect this complexity. Unity, division and reunification, echo time and again. It always fascinates me how these themes interplay, almost creating a rhythm of their own. True, Ryota. And remember how division often leads to power struggles, disloyalty and chaos. Then comes unity, fostering peace and stability. But unity is fleeting, always a precursor to another imminent division. It's a cycle that conveys a brutally honest depiction of human ambition and the fragility of power structures. Exactly. And despite this cyclical pattern, the narrative never feels repetitive. This complexity extends beyond characters and themes. We also witness it in the plot dynamics. The unexpected shifts in leadership, rapid territorial changes, and shocking betrayals all contribute to a story that consistently keeps one on their toes. Totally no character or kingdom is immune to change. The unpredictability of alliances and fallouts, coupled with the constant battle of wits, delivers an immersive reading experience. And not to forget, the fine blend of history and myth further deepens this complexity. It's like the book is gripping us with a continual curiosity. Do you think the blending of history and mythology in the book is an intentional design, or was it just a reflection of Luo Guanzhong's perception of history? That's a tough call, Ryota, but I presume it could be both. We have to consider that Luo Guanzhong was writing in a time when history and mythology were closely intertwined. He might have deliberately married the two to give readers an immersive experience of those ancient times. His writer's craft is admirable indeed. He seamlessly intertwines fact with fiction, weaving a narrative tapestry that is rich, dynamic and truly engaging. But this treatment of history and mythology goes beyond crafting an immersive narrative. It highlights significant thematic dichotomies, doesn't it? Indeed, the book is filled with powerful contrasts, such as tragedy and heroism, loyalty and betrayal. These intersections of contrasting elements create a riveting storyline that continually intrigued readers across the centuries. It's amazing how the characters embody these dichotomies. You have heroic figures like Liu Bei, who embody nobility and righteousness, but also encounter numerous tragedies on their path. And let's not forget the cunning and intelligent Zhuge Liang, the epitome of heroism in the strategic field, who often had to make morally conflicting decisions. From this perspective, history and mythology seem to be two sides of the same coin in the Romance of Three Kingdoms. They form the groundwork that the story is built upon, magnifying the depth and complexity of the narrative. Picking up from where we left off, I've always been fascinated by the way Luo Guanzhong wove the themes of fate and destiny into the narrative. Aubrey, how do you perceive his exploration of these two motifs, fate and destiny? Certainly, Ryota, fate and destiny are indeed pervasive themes in the romance of Three Kingdoms. Luo Guanzhong used these as lenses to not only understand the driving forces behind the actions of his characters, but also to make sense of the natural, political and social events unfolding in the tale. I see. In other words, despite the political manoeuvring and military strategy involved, 
The outcomes are ultimately shaped by forces beyond their control. Exactly, Ryota. The three kingdoms rise and fall, the unravelling of individual plot lines, the victories and failures, are all intimately linked with the overarching theme of destiny. It's quite laborious to untangle this mat, but also reveals the genius of the author. Interesting. This omnipresence of fate and destiny offers a rich canvas for Luo Guanzhong to explore ethical quandaries, doesn't it? Indeed, Ryota. The array of character sketches ranging from honourable heroes to scheming villains, the stoic adherents of destiny, and those who dare to defy it. These all culminate in a breadth of moral conflicts within the text. Just like with Zhuge Liang's tactful decisions and Chao Chao's ambitious exploits, I suppose. Yes, and these moral conflicts, juxtaposed against the backdrop of unavoidable fate, imbue the characters and their actions with layers of depth, complexity and human realism. Their struggles, their triumphs and their failures become grand moral dramas, set on the stage of the historical epoch. It's one of the many reasons why this epic continues to captivate us to this day. Aubrey, there's a theme that resonates deeply with me in this epic, and that's loyalty. Just look at Guan Yu's unwavering allegiance to Liu Bei, sacrificing everything, even his life, for the cause he believed in. You're absolutely right, Ryota. Guan Yu's renowned loyalty is one of the pivotal themes throughout. Loyalty is painted in such prismatic colours, appearing both virtuous and perilous at times. It reminds me that even virtues have their flip side. For instance, the complex navigation of loyalty in a multifaceted political space could become not just a seal of honour but a trap of devastation. Hmm, intriguing. What about the opposite? Any character's betrayal stands out to you in the Three Kingdoms tale? Xiao Chan's plot to turn Dong Zhou and Lu Bu against one another comes to mind. Her manipulation, driven by a broader mission of stopping Dong Zhou's reign of terror, plays a key role in the story's turning point. However, it's interesting how betrayal isn't always painted in a morally condemnatory light. Characters are, at times, forced into betrayal due to the complex political dynamics they're in. So Luo Guanzhong successfully captures the grey shades of human morality, making the character's actions not just black and white, good or bad, but a series of layered decisions which bring alive such a genuine portrayal of diverse human experiences. That's certainly fascinating. Crossing bridges to the 21st century setting, looking beyond the boundaries of literature, we find the footprint of the romance of three kingdoms thriving in today's media. To me, the most astonishing thing is the fact that the epic's epicness is still intact, still loved by audiences universally. While I have a soft spot for Japanese anime adaptions, Aubrey, anything particular caught your eyes? Well, Ryota, it's not just anime. This saga transcends mediums. The live-action TV adaptations, for instance, have a unique charm to them. Markedly, the 2010 Chinese drama series that aired 95 episodes managed to portray concise character arcs and political strategy in real time. Don't you think so, Ryota? Sure, Aubrey, and a good example would be the scene where Zhuge Liang summons the eastern wind. It's nothing short of breathtaking. But the live-action dramas, while brilliant, have to condense narrative length due to practical constraints. That's where animated adaptations have an advantage. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, they're indeed less restricted than live-action adaptations, although they can become confusing due to their fantastical elements detached from historical accuracy. Since you're tech-savvy, Ryota, 
Wonder if you've experienced the Three Kingdoms through video games. Ah, that's truly an immersive experience. Dynasty Warriors series is one prominent example, where each playable character empowers you into some key roles from the saga. It thrills me how an ancient tale can be reimagined in a modern, interactive way. However, for a novice like yourself, these games could be overwhelming, don't you think? Ryota, games like Dynasty Warriors not only make Three Kingdoms accessible, but also embolden its narrative. They hand players a literal sword. Do you think that this interactivity can paradoxically limit these experiences? Interesting, Aubrey. Games are indeed interactive, but they are constrained by rules. There's a cyclical thrill in slaying enemy generals, but it rarely matches with weight of dilemma a leader might have faced in that era. I sense you're trying to speak of the layered depth that the novel is championed for, right? Exactly. While dodging arrows is exhilarating, the strategy, the political dynamics, complex emotions, those can get diluted. Remember, in the novel, a war could be won using wit alone. No need for a single arrow. You make a compelling point. It's a clash of entertainment versus historical depth. Still, it's fascinating how this epic is reinvented continually to fit each era's popular medium, wouldn't you say? Agreed. Be it a printed book, a TV show, an animated series or video games, each medium uplifts different facets of the story and, in turn, introduces a new audience to this saga. And that's the power of the romance of Three Kingdoms. It adapts, evolves, yet stays relevant across time and platforms. As we trace the novel's journey, it's really interesting to see how the shape-shifting narrative evolves across Chinese dynasties. Yes, the romance of Three Kingdoms has transcended through history, Ryota. Could you elaborate on how various Chinese dynasties have perceived this epic? Certainly, Aubrey. Initially, the storylines were transmitted orally during the late Yuan and early Ming dynasties. But, as the art of printing developed during the Ming era, the epics like Three Kingdoms began to be written down. There's a perception that Three Kingdoms gradually defeated during the Qing dynasty, turning from historical annals to a mix of both fact and lore. It's intriguing how the complex narratives were honoured over centuries in the teed of time and society. The growth of a narrative over centuries certainly commands awe, but the journey was not confined to the East, was it? No, not at all, Aubrey. In fact, it is believed that the romance of Three Kingdoms began being translated during the late 18th century. Initially, only extracts were translated, but eventually it found its stride in Western literature during the late Victorian era. Introducing such a deep narrative to a different culture would have posed its unique challenges, right? Absolutely. Considering the novel's historical, philosophical and cultural intricacies, the process of translation was more retrieval and rendition than literal translation. Nonetheless, it paved the way for the epic to get its first feel of global recognition and study. Over the course of its journey, the romance of Three Kingdoms must have been subjected to a lot of scholarly analysis. Can you share some insights on that, Ryota? Certainly, Aubrey. Scholars have long argued about the novel's classification, whether it falls under historical records or fiction. Some suggest that the book was Luo Guanzhong's critique of his contemporary society using the lens of the past. Others advocate that it's a socio-political commentary, cloaked in the garb of historical fantasy. The scholarly discourse surrounding the Three Kingdoms still rages on, attesting to the depth and relevance of this masterpiece.
Now that we've journeyed through the foundational aspects of Romance of Three Kingdoms, what impressions do you have, Aubrey? I found this dive into the epic to be an enriching experience, Ryota. The novel's manner of intertwining history and fictional narratives, the depth of its characters, and the intricate political dynamics of the era have broadened my appreciation for it. I share your sentiments. This novel truly represents an intricate tapestry of ancient Chinese culture, folklore, and social politics. And the exploration of themes such as loyalty, power struggle, fate and morality continues to resound in today's society. It's mind-boggling how Luo Guanzhong was able to carve such a lasting masterpiece. In our upcoming episodes, we'll continue to delve deeper into the rich narrative, excavating the layers of characterization, dissecting subtle political manoeuvres and reflecting on the epic's impact on modern culture. This includes looking at the various media adaptations that have brought this age-old epic to an even wider audience, thereby cementing its relevance in today's digitised world. Our journey has only just begun. The romance of the Three Kingdoms is ancient, but its narratives and dilemmas are timeless. So, to our listeners, we urge you to dip into Luo Guanzhong's world and immerse yourself in his spectacular creation. Join us in our exploration and share your insights on our channel. We would love to hear your perspectives on the episodes, characters and themes. So here's to the start of a captivating adventure together.